Welcome to the West Wind Unitarian Universalist podcast. Join us in creating compassionate community. Okay. Usually when I stand up here, I have a whole lot of notes. I have a whole lot of notes, but I'm not using them today. I want to have a conversation with you. So, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson in the U.S. Incarceration System is the name of my reflection today. How many of you guys are familiar with Brian Stevenson? Yeah? He started the uh, Innocence Project. He started it in the mid to late 80s after he graduated from Harvard and was struggling to find his place in the world. He went and did an internship in Alabama that became a lifelong project to get people erroneously accused of uh, crime off death row. His book, Just Mercy, is a fantastic book. It was really good. It's also a movie right now. Part of the reason I read the book was because Marilyn nicely recommended that I go watch the movie and I don't have a lot of time to get to movies these days if they are not on my television. So uh, she bought the book and she let me read it. It was a lovely read. It's a little disturbing read. I don't know how many of you guys have watched the documentary 13th. Is anybody familiar with that one? That's on Netflix. Okay. 13th talks about the 13th Amendment and the historical abuse of criminal punishment in an effort to imprison black and brown people. Okay. So it starts historically from the end of the Civil War and describes the way in which first the South immediately began to imprison black men and children, basically, to put them on chain gangs to work in fields that no longer had slaves to work on them. The 13th Amendment says that everyone is, uh, has a right to be a citizen within this country and has a right to be paid for their labor unless you are convicted of a crime, at which point you can be enslaved again. And so many, many, many black men and children were arrested for their participation in vagrancy, and uh, um, loitering, spitting on sidewalks, crossing the street inappropriately. And they were sentenced to years of hard labor on the fields that they'd just been freed from. When they began to flee the South en masse to Chicago and New York and Boston and uh, Pennsylvania and the West Coast, um, that labor was no longer there anymore. Then we move into the Jim Crow era we get the movie, um, oh, I hate the name of the movie and I can't remember it now, I should have written it down. No, not 12 Years a Slave, that's way too recent. We're talking about the one that, uh, it's okay. So there was a film in the 1920s and 1930s that was a birth of a nation. There we go, thank you, I'm so sorry. 1915. The reflection in the documentary 13th was that Birth of a Nation created the image of the KKK that we presently see today. The KKK had started to fall off as an organization prior to that film and had a huge resurgence afterwards. That's when the KKK started wearing pointy hats. That's when the KKK started burning crosses. That's when the KKK started to really ramp up their lynching efforts. This is the progress through the Jim Crow era brings us to the civil rights era. Civil rights era, um, the African-American community in the United States began to use imprisonment as a form of social rebellion. 
it went from being imprisoned because you were loitering and being imprisoned for uh, thought of crimes to criminalize your body and then re-enslave you to being imprisoned as a means of protest. Marching in the streets, sitting on buses, sitting at counters, being imprisoned now became a means of freedom. They stuffed jails with black people. They filled them to capacity and beyond. There were so many people to arrest, they did not have room to arrest them all. And that is how they began to move change forward. They were supported by some of our European-American community as well. As we move forward through that racially tense era, we move into the 60s, then we start having a lot of marches for women's social liberation. We have a lot of marches for freedom. We have a lot of marches against racial oppression. In that process, um, the government did not have a retaliation against protest. It's difficult. You can't arrest people for exercising their First Amendment right. Nixon was quoted by one of his cabinet members as saying that we can't arrest um, black people and we can't arrest women liberation people, but we can do is arrest hippies and we can arrest heroin users and we can arrest pot smokers. And so we can vilify the protesters and we can undermine the integrity of their organizations by imprisoning them on false pretenses. <coughs> Nixon declared the first war on drugs. His declaration of the war on drugs was a direct effort to imprison and incarcerate leaders of these reform movements. They were either executed, they were put to life sentences, or they were exiled from our country. This is what the movie 13th talks about. It talks about the growing and expansion of the U.S. imprison system. The United States houses one in four prisoners of everyone imprisoned in the world. Okay? So the entire globe, everybody who's in jail, 25% of them are in jail in the United States. The United States has the largest imprisoned population of any country in the world, which I think is insane. Um, those numbers may have risen. The 13th documentary came out in 2016. And since then, we have really ramped up the amount of people that we have decided are illegal and need to be re-imprisoned. That ramp up and that excursion, I personally think, has probably brought our numbers closer to 30%, but I can't guarantee that because I have not looked up the information. I'm sorry. That said, I'd like to go back to Brian Stevenson's book. Brian Stevenson was an attorney. He was a criminal attorney. And he went to Alabama in the mid-'80s, and what he discovered was that almost everyone on death row had no lawyer to help them with their appeals cases. The state of Alabama paid a defense attorney $1,000 to defend any defendant. If you needed more than one attorney, then they split the fee. They could not get enough attorneys to do the work that was necessary to defend a person's case because they didn't have the time to do it. So the book focuses on one case, one case in his life, and the case is about a man named Willie. Willie was a black man who lived in Alabama. He was married. Uh, he was a logger. He cut down trees for a living, worked outside. He had an affair with a white woman. Um, couldn't be arrested for that when he had the affair. It was in the late 70s, early 80s. It wasn't illegal, but it was definitely frowned upon by the authorities within that community. So when that white woman was arrested with a white man for being involved in a criminal conspiracy to murder a drug dealer, the white man was convinced by the sheriff's department to say that Willie kidnapped him, raped him at gunpoint, 
forced him to drive Willie to a laundromat where a young white woman was killed at the counter and robbed. Then Willie was said to have gotten back in the vehicle, forced that white man to drive him back to where he got the white man in the first place, dropped him off and went home. He was convicted. That was the facts that were distributed the case uh, for the recording. Those were air quote facts. Um, and he went to prison. Now, when Brian Stevenson began to look into his case, Willie was on death row. Willie and the white man who convicted him when they were arrested were both held on death row until their trial. They were not put in a county jail. They were not given an opportunity for bail. The white man tried to recount his statement three different times. Every time he tried to recount his statement, he was taken back to death row. Willie spent his entire time there prior to his conviction. Okay. The lawyer, for his case, after the conviction went through, said there was no reason to appeal. There was nothing that they could do to prove him innocent. Willie's like, well, first of all, the woman was killed on the day we had a fish fry at my house. There were tens of people there, if not hundreds, at his fish fry. They had flyers for the fish fry that showed what day it was on. The man whose daughter was shot at the laundromat was at the fish fry. When asked about it, he said, oh, no, I went to the fish fry, but it was on a different day. Willie's like, no, it wasn't. The person who saw his truck drive to this laundromat to have it happen said, oh, yeah, I totally recognize Willie's lowrider, man. It's his truck. I know it. You can, you can recognize it anywhere. Willie's truck wasn't lowered for six months after he was arrested, and the crime happened six months before his arrest. So that never came up in the case. The man who accused him of doing all these horrible things to him tried repeatedly to recant his statement. When he finally got on the stand and was able to do it, the judge said, well, you lied once. Who knows you're not lying again? doesn't matter. All of Willie's family, friends, and community stood up repeatedly to let people know that Willie was with them at his house the entire day. It did not matter. And why it doesn't matter, or didn't matter, I think is because of the way that we think of voice. A very good friend of mine, Yadane Helu, is a uh, UU minister in Tulsa, and she's going to come and speak to us on March 1st. She's a really exciting speaker. I'm really looking forward to hearing her words. She listened to my sermon from uh, two weeks ago in which I talked about uh, black UU leaders and the black hole in white UU. And uh, she had one comment of criticism which I think was very valid. We of privilege do not give voice to the underprivileged. We give space. They've always had a voice. They have always had a voice. We give that room to be heard. We stop talking so that they can talk. We allow them to occupy and be present. We do not give them presence. We do not give them voice. We we don't even allow them. We create the space that's available so they can be heard. Our system has systematically undermined the integrity of people's voices being heard. The judicial system that convicted Willie and put him on death row did not allow his voice and the voice of his community to be heard. The system was so contaminated that it took almost 20 years to get Willie off of death row. And almost from the beginning, it was very clear that he was not guilty. He was being convicted of dating a white woman. 
So, Brian Stevenson book. Fantastic book. Fantastic book. It doesn't just talk about Willie. It talks about the incarceration of children for criminal offenses for life in prison. It talks about the incarceration of women for crimes that their husbands and their spouses commit. It talks about the in brokenness of our foster system because of the way that we incarcerate parents and take them away from their children. It talks about the way that drugs and paraphernalia are used as a means to criminalize bodies as opposed to help them with health problems. Brian Stevenson is a very bright, is a very bright man. He wrote a fantastic book. The work that he does for the Innocent Project is fantastic. It continues now because it is necessary. And now he has a lot more tools than he had in the 1980s. He's able to prove that the DNA wasn't the DNA, right? There's an opportunity for us to free these people whose voices have been closeted, silenced, held out of hearing range. We are given the opportunity to give those voices space. We give those voices space when we stand up at the uh, city council meeting and we say that we need to apologize for our actions as a sundown town. We give those voices when we tell our friends and family that they need to watch, say, the 13th documentary and learn more about the way that our system systematically oppresses people with bodies of color. We give those voices space when we read their books and we read their magazine articles and we publish their newspaper prints, when we invite them to come to speak to us, when we go and listen to them speak. And then we take the leadership of those voices to heart and we move forward to make progress. I know, I usually have a lot of jokes in my sermon. I'm sorry, there's not a lot of jokes today. I want to thank Yadni for pointing out that I do not give someone a voice. I give them a space to use it. And I call on you to find a way to give those marginalized voices space in your life, space in your homes, space in your work, space on the street, so their voices can be heard. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Unitarian Universalism and to connect with us, please visit www.westwinduuc org, or find us on Facebook at Westwind Unitarian Universalist Congregation. Mm -hmm.